0: Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, over the past several years, I've been consistently appalled by the mingling of Christian words and phrases with the vision of American nationalism, specifically white supremacist nationalism. I struggle to think of many things that could be more antithetical to the way of Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah, who fulfilled the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God would bless all the nations through one family, and that in the end there would be this gathering of this great multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. It has offended my deepest sensibilities as a Christ follower to see people apply the label of Jesus or gospel to things that couldn't be further from Jesus, and to watch people my neighbors, the people that I interact with who don't know Jesus, who don't know anything about the church, maybe other than some experience they had growing up, to see this happening and then to think that all Christians must feel that way about Jesus. No, there's been so much profaning of the name of Jesus with these petty idolatries, these political platforms, because people who bore the name of Jesus were telling them that this is what Jesus looks like. It makes me deeply angry. Today, we're going to look at a situation during the life and times of Jeremiah that has a lot of similarities to the situation that we face in the American church. And we're going to see how easily we deceive ourselves with slogans and badges into thinking that we are living a righteous life. And in this series so far, we've been pursuing a life of excellence. We've been discussing what it means to live a life that pursues God's way of excellence. We've discussed how an excellent life starts with God and pursues both the general vocation, what it means to be made in the image of God, and the specific vocation, where our deep gladness meets with the world's deep hunger. And for all intents and purposes, we have placed ourselves in Jeremiah's shoes thus far in this series, allowing God's words to Jeremiah to give us a vision for our lives today. But as we talk during this next couple of moments, I want to invite us to shift our location ever so slightly. You see, Jeremiah, having received his vocation and promises from God, now steps into the dangerous public domain to proclaim the message that God has charged him with. And we have this tendency, as modern, western readers of the Bible, to cast ourselves in the role of the hero in the role of the righteous, the one who is standing against the multitudes and against the tides of cultural pressure and is staying faithful to God, the one living out God's calling. But, often, the word is not simply reinforcing our own presuppositions, saying to each one of us, hey, you're doing this so well, saying to each one of us that our behaviors are all in line with God's will and purposes. The word, more often than not, is calling us to hear anew, to repent, to turn back to God's face and find life again in Him. So what do all these things have to do with each other? What does this have to do with the way that the Christian language has been dragged through the mud in American political discourse? I think we can do two things at once here. First, I can look at what's going on in the larger public square and call it for what it is. It's wrong. It's a distortion. It's a counterfeit gospel. And at the same time, I have to heed the call of the scriptures. Not to look for the evil in everyone out there. Not to always be scanning the horizon saying, who needs to hear a word from the Lord? But rather... To look within. When we do this, we develop, when we look out at the world and try start looking for what's wrong, we look for the error, we develop our own God badges. Marks of faithfulness that are determined and designed not from God's point of view, but from our point of view. And really then, We just become purveyors of our own brand of idolatry, our own religion of self-righteousness. It may not be nationalism that we are adhering to, but it will be something that reflects the person in the mirror. And so, today, we're going to both acknowledge the wrongs in the general air that we breathe, and we're also going to allow the Word of God to do its work in us. Because what we find, the Joseph Conrad, is that the heart of darkness is not out there, but actually runs right down the middle of each one of us. And so today we're going to look at the words of Jeremiah to his people as he steps out with his very unpopular message in Jeremiah chapter 7. I invite you, if you have a paper Bible, you can turn over there, or if you're using your phone, pull up Jeremiah chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 7. Jeremiah starts, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, there's a contrast in this text, a contest actually of words. The people that Jeremiah is getting, trying to get to listen are, are trusting in slogans. They've, they've adhered to a cliche faith that they use not to know God and His ways in the world, but actually to keep God at arm's length. They're in the temple of God, and they're telling themselves over and over again, look at this amazing temple. God would never let any harm come to this place or come to this people, because this is, as they say over and over again, mindlessly, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, from our vantage point, this may seem silly to us, But we easily, from our modern perspective, miss the significance in the history of the temple where these people are standing. When Solomon dedicated the temple upon its completion in 1 Kings chapter 7, it says, "...when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple." Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever and ever. When they dedicated the temple, this this temple that the people are finding their reassurance and their faith in, when they dedicated this temple some 300 years before, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah presence, God was there and he filled the place. And believe me, This story had been told over and over again ever since. The temple was a sign not only of God's presence, but of His promise to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. And God's promises are not just, hey, in the end it's all going to go okay for you. God's promises are concrete. God's promises are about a place and a land. And and God said, I will bring you to a place and I will sustain you there. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's only one problem with all of this. God's promises for them, for this land, this place that they could call their home, were not a blank check, not an invitation for the people to do whatever they wanted. God had graciously rescued The people of Israel from Egypt. He had established them from being a slave people to being an actual nation. To be his holy priesthood. To show the world what it looks like to live under the righteous rule and reign of God. To express his shalom to everybody around. But that grace came with some expected responses. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29. Moses says, all who hear the words of the oath and bless themselves, thinking in their hearts, we are safe. Even though we go our own stubborn ways, thus bringing disaster on moist and dry alike, the Lord will be unwilling to pardon them, for the Lord's anger and passion will smoke against them. All the curses written in this book will descend upon them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. Now, this may seem harsh, But God is drawing the stakes. He's saying, this is what it means to be my people. You can, Deuteronomy says elsewhere, I put before you blessings and curses, life and death, and God implores them, choose life. Jeremiah pronounces God's indictment against the people. He's saying that that thing that I warned you about, you have done exactly what I warned you not to do, and now... There are consequences coming your way. But notice in Jeremiah chapter 7, there's still an opportunity to turn. Let's keep reading in verse 5 of Jeremiah 7. It says, If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. God is saying to the people through Jeremiah, here in Jeremiah 7, your catchphrases and your cliches don't line up with my character. But look, it says in verse 8, You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Jeremiah, in delivering the word of God to the people, highlights three disconnects that we see in this passage. First, people are disconnected from God, which is idolatry. Second, people are disconnected from their neighbors, bringing injustice. And third, people are disconnected from reality. This slogan, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they think that just by muttering that or by uh, somehow uh, holding on to that, that God will just magically save them. And God is saying, look, I'm bringing judgment on this place. And so the third disconnect we see is that people are disconnected from reality, which is just a way of expressing ignorance. And it's so instructive here that the temple, the place of worship, is the focal point of the conversation between Jeremiah and those who want nothing to do with what he's saying to them. And in many ways, we in Western Christianity, American uh, faith in Jesus, have fallen into this trap. We divide worship from work, worship from justice, worship from discernment about what's going on in the world. We think of worship oftentimes as that which happens, at least in non-pandemic times, when the church gathers between the walls of the building where we're all assembled. But here, Jeremiah connects that which is happening inside the temple to everything that happens outside of the walls. Look in verse 9. God says through Jeremiah, God asks the people, Will you steal and murder Commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? And then, with all of that, come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say that we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord." The people are saying all the right prayers in the temple. They're singing all the right songs. They're hearing all the best content. And yet, when they go from the temple, when they go about their days, their Monday through Saturdays, nothing they are doing reflects the character of God. And God, like a watchful parent, says, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see the results. I see what it's bringing about. The prophet Amos will draw this stark contrast like this. In Amos chapter 5, God is speaking through Amos and God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Jesus will say it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers, and thus deceive yourselves. For if any are hearers of the word, and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves, and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. Are you sensing a theme here? For the biblical writers, worship is not something that we simply gather in a room to do. It's not something that we say and sing out. Worship is living out God's purposes in the world. To worship is to accept God's call to His priesthood, to be mediators between heaven and earth, to bring the life of the kingdom of His will be done into our lives in the here and now. And the people... That Jeremiah is trying to shake loose from their tepid, lukewarm slogan faith or just shutting up their ears to what God is saying to them. They're holding on to their slogans, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and God himself is speaking to them and saying, you are deceiving yourself. He's trying to wake them up, to rouse them from relying upon these silly cliches and to instead rely upon his words which have shown him the way of righteousness and truth. The voice of the living God and saying, come this way, follow me. And interestingly, Jesus in his life, and during the last week of his life, will pick up on Jeremiah's urgent call here. As Jesus enters Jerusalem upon the last week of his life, Jesus goes into the temple. Not this temple exactly, you see, sadly... The very warnings that Jeremiah is offering to the people saying, listen, if you don't change your ways, the Babylonians are going to come through and they're going to wreak havoc on the city. They're going to burn this place to the ground. Sadly, everything that Jeremiah warns the people against happens. So the temple that Jesus arrives at some 600 years later is a new temple, a second temple that has to be rebuilt after the people are allowed to return to the land. And Jesus comes into the temple, and he sees in this second temple money changers who are serving to support a sort of spiritual caste system, and he is filled with holy zeal and indignation, and he turns over the tables, he fashions a whip, and he stirs up the livestock, creating a sort of mini stampede, and he cries loudly, it is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you are making it, notice this, a den of robbers. God in Jeremiah says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. Jesus, as he goes to the temple in Jerusalem during the last week of his life, says you have made this place into a den of robbers. And in doing this, Jesus enacts a judgment upon the temple saying that it's just a form. It's not the real thing. Anything short of God himself, even a sacred, holy thing like the temple, can be propped up into an idol, used as a way not of drawing near to God, but of keeping God at arm's length and dividing people. Jesus, in John's gospel, will then use temple language to describe the life that he offers to each and every person. In John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me." Now this is beautiful imagery in its own right, but we can easily miss the historical aspects of what's going on. The first century historian Josephus describes a massive gold vine hung with golden fruit arrayed over the door of the sanctuary in the Jerusalem temple where Jesus would have walked and would have turned over the tables. The picture on the screen is a, a recreation of what this might have looked like. But what I hope you can see What Jesus is saying here, He is the vine. He is the way into the presence of God. He is the way to bear fruit in the world. So the question that begins to circle in upon us in this moment is this. In what ways does our life right now cling to a facade of faithfulness? An exterior life that says the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God is so happy with me. He'll never let any harm befall me. But a life that has all this stuff on the exterior but lacks interior depth and interior affection for God. How are we using the things of God to avoid God himself? Jesus turned over the tables in the temple and pronounced judgment on the temple, saying that He alone is the way to a life with God. The people in Jeremiah's day were trusting in worthless, deceptive words and ignoring the very word of God before them. Ecclesia, where are you clinging to the things of God and ignoring God Himself? Jesus told the Pharisees, You furiously scrub the outside of the cup, yet the inside is filthy and moldy. He told them that you bleach gravestones, but they're still full of dead bones. Jesus is coming to our hearts. He's turning over the tables in our lives saying, Follow me. Stop trusting in your small ways of conceiving God. Hear the word of the Lord anew. Hear my words which are life and peace. And listen to my leading. Do what my word says. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. And just as a way of asking ourselves the question today, I want you to imagine... Imagine you have this old dilapidated house. You've got a lot of stuff in that house that you really like, but you know the house isn't going to make it much longer. And worse yet, you have this oil tank that you've been using to heat the house, and the oil tank has been leaking into your neighbor's yard. They've complained to you about it multiple times, and it's caused them severe financial problems. And God comes to you, and he says, Hey, um, nice house. But I tell you what, we both know this house isn't going to make it much longer. How about I get you a new house? And you're blown away. Like the old extreme home makeover. You're like, really? A new house? This is amazing. This is really awesome. It'd be so great to have a new house for all this stuff that I like. A brand new house where I can live. Where's where's it going to be? God looks at you and says, well, we're going to build it right here. We're going to knock down this house, This, this house that isn't going to be standing much longer, and we're going to build a new one. Okay, you say. That sounds good, I, I think. But wh- what about right now? I mean, it takes a while to build a house, right? And where will me and all my stuff, where are we going to live? And God looks at you and he says, look, this is going to be hard for a while. And here's another thing. You know those neighbors that keep knocking on your door complaining about your oil tank? You need to give them all your stuff as a way of making atonement, as a way of saying you're sorry for all the pain you've caused them all my stuff, you say? God's still smiling, but Unmoved says, yep, all of it. God says, listen, you're going to have to change some of your habits. Life's going to be hard for a while. And while we get this whole house thing straightened out, but it's going to be so good. I'm going to build you a brand new house. And listen, it won't be full of the stuff because we're not just going to go back to normal. It seems this stuff is getting in the way of you and I. And so it'll have the right amount of stuff. The right amount of stuff that you need and the right amount of stuff that brings you real joy. And we're going to help your neighbors plant a garden after they sell all your stuff and then use the money from the sale to remediate the land from all the pollution that you've caused them. And then here's the best part. This new house that I'm building, I'm going to live there too. And I'll be showing you the best way to live, giving you even the strength to follow my ways, to do the things that I've asked you to do. But it's going to be a little bit of a my house, my rules kind of situation. I'm sure you understand. And Ecclesia, here's the thing about God. God's not going to make you say yes to this new house. Yes, Jesus turns over the tables in the temple and he turns over the tables in our lives, but... Those very same people who saw Jesus turn over the tables were able to reject Jesus, to have Him crucified. As Jesus dies in Matthew's Gospel, as He hangs upon the cross and He breathes His last breath, Matthew records that the curtain in the Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem, just past the door with the golden vine hanging over it, this curtain is ripped in two. Signifying that Jesus through his work on the cross and eventually through his resurrection is tearing down everything that would stand between us and God. He is breaking down all the religious trappings in our life not because religion is bad in and of itself but because anything less than the fullness of God's presence is nothing but a sorry excuse for a life. A life pursuing handmade gods. Jesus is turning over the tables. And he's not just turning over the tables of all the ills of the world out there. Not just the things that we see so plainly and enable ourselves to stand in judgment upon. No, Jesus is coming right into the confines of our hearts and saying, listen, there's another way. And I want to invite you to consider where is God maybe prompting you in this moment, saying that there's something that you need to let Jesus have control over. Where is he turning over the tables, places that may feel uncomfortable, places that may be paradigm shifting? Where is he inviting you to confess, to submit, to allow him to heal? Friends, that sense of conviction is never in God's economy condemnation. But rather, it is an invitation to come back home, to start anew, to begin again, to allow God to make a new life, build a new house. Jeremiah shows us that this life, this way, is the most excellent way. So would you hear his word today? Would you see Jesus on the cross? Would you see that he has torn down everything, even the seemingly good things that stand between us and God and he stands before us fully revealing his love to us? Would you allow his word to break through the slogans and the cliches as he stands before you in fullness? There's no loss in submitting there's no loss in turning ourselves over to God. It is there that we find the most beautiful way. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.